Hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. Well, it's good to be with you this Memorial Day weekend. Um, Many times when we think about Memorial Day, we think about grilling out, we think about spending time with family or friends, and we think about having a day off from work. But as many of you know, um, you may not know that when, but in 1971, Congress established Memorial Day as a day to remember those who gave their lives in service to our nation. As such, we have this memorial, this day every year is a memorial of remembrance. It's a day to remember the price that has been paid so that you can enjoy grilling out with friends and family, so that you can enjoy the great freedoms that we have that have been handed down to us. So this concept of remembrance, of remembering, is very important, not only in the life of our nation, but in the life of the Christian. It's actually prescribed throughout the scriptures for the people of God to remember God and to remember his wondrous works that we have read about, that we have sung about this morning. For instance, in Deuteronomy 8, the people of God were instructed to remember God's dealings with them after the exodus from Egypt. In Psalm 105.5, we read, remember his wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. With the Lord's Supper that we'll partake of next week, Jesus instructs his disciples to do this in remembrance of me. Peter The apostle, he wrote both of his letters by way of reminder, to remind the people of God. Earlier, Rusty read from Psalm 78. We see the importance of teaching our children about God so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It's implied there that they would remember The scriptures speak frequently about remembering. Why? Because we're quick to forget. That's why the Israelites set up memorial stones after they crossed the Jordan to remember that God brought them across the river. That's why Samuel takes a stone and calls it Ebenezer. And the stone was a reminder that the Lord helped them in their battle against the Philistines. So scripture stresses the need for us to remember. Since we remain in this body of death We are easily tempted to doubt God, to forget God's amazing grace that he's poured upon us. I'm sure that that is many of you. You see God's mighty works at hand. You read about God's mighty works. And then just a few minutes later or the next day, where is God? But God gives us, he gives us these means of remembrance. He's given us the Lord's day as a means of remembrance. He's given us his word. He calls us to disciple and teach others, to teach one another that we might not forget the truth of his ways. He's given us visible signs, such as baptism and Lord's Supper, as a means of remembrance. So important that we remember, because we are quick to forget. Like Elijah, he witnessed the awesome display of God's power, yet when Jezebel threatened to kill him, he throws a pity party as though he had forgotten God. He forgot that he was on the Lord's side. We have the example of Peter. He walked with Christ. He saw his glory unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yet you know what he did. He denied Christ three times. You and I are no different. We oftentimes read the scriptures and we think, Not me, I would never do that. But think about the men that you read about who deny God, who are quick to forget God. These are stalwarts. Peter, with Christ, walking with him, I will never deny you. You should be, as you read that, you should be shocked, but you should also be taken back. What about me? It's important that we remember God and that we remember his works. It's important that we remember who we are, or better yet, it's important that we remember whose we are. And God has given us means to remind us of these glorious truths. And that's what we'll see this morning. God will leave Jacob with a reminder of his encounter that he has with God. 
We'll see that in Genesis chapter 32. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. In this passage, we'll see Jacob's heavenly encounter. It will leave Jacob with a limp that will most assuredly remind him that God is with him. And this is important because he's about to meet his brother for the very first time in 20 years. The same brother who comforted himself by plotting to murder Jacob. So let's go ahead and read our passage. I'm reading and preaching from the ESV. If you're new with us, um, I'm going to read Genesis 32, 22 through 32, and then I'll pray before we go any further. So Genesis 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took two wives, his female servants and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered Then the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, We come before your throne this morning through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We acknowledge this because the Spirit has opened our eyes to the truth. Our hearts, which were once fiercely opposed to you, are now affectionately drawn to you. And this is all of grace. Oh God, help us to remember that salvation belongs to you. Help us to remember that you are mighty to save. You've done the work that we could not. And now through the work of the Spirit, the atoning work of Christ has been applied to us. Guard us against any presumptuous thoughts. Guard us against apathy and indifference to you. Show us your glory. The glory that's been revealed through the Son, who is filled with your Spirit. Show us your glory, O God. And stir up within us a love for you. Knowing that you first loved us. Empower us to share your love with the nations, both in word and in deed. Oh, that we would not be silent, but oh, that our lives would not taint the testimony that we bring. So renew in us this morning a great confidence in you and a great confidence in your gospel. And oh, that we would be bold in you. And I pray that through the preaching of your word, you will stir up within us a godly confidence and godly affections that come from beholding your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Help us this morning, I pray. In no other name but Jesus' name, we come before you. Amen. So Genesis 
32 and 33, which is where we're currently at. Last week, we were in the first 21 verses. This week, we're in the end of 32. The next week, we'll be in 33. But we see here Jacob's entrance into the promised land. He's almost home. He spent nearly 20 years, or spent about 20 years with his uncle in Padan Aram. And before he makes it, he's already faced one obstacle, and now he's about to face another. Remember, Jacob's brother Esau, he wanted to kill Jacob for stealing his blessing. And now he's on his way to meet Jacob, and he's not alone. He has 400 men with him. And Jacob's afraid, he's fearful. Last week we saw Jacob prayed to the Lord and said, I fear him. He's scared that Esau's gonna come in and just wipe out their camp. Him, his mother, the mothers of his children and, and his children. But before Jacob will encounter Esau, he will have an encounter with God as we'll see this morning. And this will remind Jacob that God is with him. And that's what we'll see here in this passage. We've divided this passage into three sections. You can see this in your worship guide on page five, just to see the outline. In verses 22 through 25, we'll see the wrestling match. Jacob, he sends his family across the river. He's left alone for the night. And while he was alone, a man comes and wrestles with him until the break of day. And then in the second section, verses 26 through 29, we see the blessing. Jacob is persistent in his request for a blessing and subsequently he will be blessed. And then in verses 30 through 32, we see the results of this encounter, the aftermath. Jacob, he names this place Peniel. He will walk with a limp and then the people of Israel will create a tradition to remember this event. And as we look at this passage, we're gonna spend most of our time wrestling with two questions. Who is this man? And why are they wrestling? And that'll help us as we think through this text. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive in. But I want to begin with verse 21. In verse 21, we see Jacob, he sends a present ahead of him to Esau, and he stayed himself at that, that night in the camp with his family. Remember, he's sending Esau gifts. He's sending this gift in waves that he might appease his brother, as we see back in verse 20. And while these gifts are gone, have gone ahead of him, He remains with his family. But as we see in verse 22, the same night he arose. So he wakes up. Perhaps he's restless. Uh, We we can't blame him for being restless, for being anticipating what's happening tomorrow. We really don't know though why he woke up, but he woke up. And what's he do? He takes his wives, his female servants, his children, and they cross the river. So he sends them across the river, which is a tributary of the Jordan. That's what the Jabbok or the Jabok River is. So perhaps he's doing this at night because he's, he doesn't want to cross the river in the daytime and Esau intersect him there and catch him. Um, we really don't know though. That's not the point of the text. The point of verses 22 and 23 is not to show us why he's doing this, why he took everything as we see in verse 23, sent everything across the stream. It's not to show us why he did that. Rather, it's to show us that he did that. And now Jacob is left alone. So that's the setting. Jacob, he arose at night, sends his family, his possessions across the river. We don't know why he did this. That's not the point. We don't want to read into the passage. We don't want to read into scripture. But the point is, as we see at the beginning of verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. But not for long, because we see in the next part of verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So Jacob He's left alone, and then a man comes and wrestles with him until the breaking of the day. And so that leads us to the two questions. We just to ask these two questions. Who is this man, and why are they wrestling? First question, who is he? Well, up front, let me just say, this has been subject to much debate, and several erroneous views have been proposed over the years. One erroneous view is that this is either Jacob's guardian angel or Esau's. Another erroneous view is that Jacob is wrestling with himself. And one final erroneous view is that this was merely a dream. I think it's worthwhile just to respond to these briefly. So to say that this is Jacob's or Esau's guardian angel is to read something into the scriptures that is not there. 
As John Calvin writes, whether individual angels have been assigned to individual believers for their protection, I dare not confirm with confidence. Calvin says this because the idea of guardian angels, that idea is just not taught clearly in scripture. So there goes the first view out the window. We don't have any biblical support. Second view that this is Jacob wrestling with himself. Some who hold to this believe that Jacob is wrestling with his fear, with his guilt, with his shame. And and in response, I would say that's to allegorize the text to a degree that rejects the historical reliability of Scripture. I mean, what we have here is a man wrestling with Jacob. So to say that this is something else, to say that he's actually really wrestling with himself, is to allegorize the, the text and actually miss the historical reliability of it. I won't go down that trail, but you know where that can lead. That is a deadly trail to go down. But second, this position that Jacob is wrestling with himself doesn't adequately address the physical aspects of the passage. Like, why does Jacob have a physical limp? I I get it. Some of you have woke up in the morning and you ache and you have like some kind of injury. You're like, how did I get that? Just woke up, just got out of bed. But Jacob doesn't have one of those. It's not just a crick in his neck. I mean, Jacob is walking with a limp that that is an injury. How do you explain that if he's wrestling with himself? I guess figuratively speaking in that idea. Third view, this was merely a dream. Well, if this is merely a dream, how does that address the physical aspects once again of this encounter? I mean, Jacob's hip is put out of socket And then he names this place Peniel because he says, I've seen the face of God and I've lived. He didn't say I had a vision of God. I saw God in a dream. He says, I saw God face to face and lived. If you want to talk more about this, we can. But this is not a wrestling match between Jacob and a guardian angel. This is not a wrestling match with himself. And this is not merely a dream. So what is taking place here? Verse 24, look to the text. A man wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of the day. But who is this man? Well, we see in verse 30 that Jacob names the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. So verse 30 alludes to Jacob, his belief that this is God. But we still have several difficult questions to answer. First of all, why can't this man defeat Jacob? In verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, why couldn't he defeat him if he's God? And then in verse 26, Jacob, well, we see here that Jacob will not let the man go. He says to Jacob, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. How could this be God if Jacob can't, if if he can't overpower Jacob? Another difficult question is this. Why does the man refuse to tell Jacob his name? In verse 29, Jacob asked, please tell me your name. And then we see he does not answer that question. To make it even more difficult, the prophet Hosea in Hosea 12.4, he says that Jacob strove with an angel and prevailed. But if this is an angel... Why does Jacob in verse 30 say, I've seen God face to face and my life has been delivered? And Jacob assumes that he's seen God here. But as we know from scripture, can man see God and live? Think about Moses. God told Moses in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So who is this man? Well, the identity of this man will gradually emerge throughout the passage. At first, we see the two men wrestling all night in verse 24 till the breaking of the day. And then in verse 25, we have an interesting clue. As we see here, the man was unable to prevail against Jacob. So what does he do? He touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Just notice the power and strength of this wrestler. All it took was a simple touch to the hip, out of socket, out of joint. This shows us this was not a wrestling match between equals. 
This is more like the dad wrestling with his young son. He allows his son to keep up. And then eventually the dad, maybe he gets tired. Gets, he's done with it. And he just decides to show his son his, his strength for a second. He shows his son that he's really no match for his father. Yes, I have young children at home, so this still works. I realize that they will get bigger than me one day and that'll no longer work. But you know the picture. Dad wrestling with the kids, the, the little ones, and, the, and they think they're fighting dad, they're doing good, and then dad just all of a sudden reminds them, maybe picks them up, maybe does whatever he does, just to show them, look, we're not equals here. In a sense, that's what we have. But that doesn't explain the first phrase that the man could not prevail against Jacob. Now, if you're thinking purely in terms of wrestling between boys or a boy and his father or between men, I think you'll miss the point. I think you'll miss what's happening here. It doesn't mean that there's not a physical wrestling match, but if we think purely in terms of the physicality, we miss something. So to help us understand this just a little more, look at verse 26. So the man says, let me go. And then Jacob says, I will not let you go. He's holding on to the man saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's grasping for this man. He is persistently clinging to this man. Jacob's holding on to him, clinging to him. Remember, he's been injured by him, yet he recognizes there's a blessing in store, a blessing to be had from this man. So he's striving after that blessing. He's not trying to make him tap out. That's not what's happening here. He's grasping for this blessing. In a sense, it's almost like he's grasping at the hill. It's almost like we have another picture of Jacob grasping at the hill again, saying, please don't go, give me that blessing. He's not trying to say, hey, submit to me. That's the wrong picture. More, he's grasping, saying, don't leave me. Don't go. And please, bless me. Don't leave until you bless me and in the midst of this blessing. We learn two more important truths about this man. We learn in verse 28 that he has the authority to give Jacob a new name. We'll come back to that in a little bit, but he gives him a new name. And then also in verse 28, he says, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So who is this man? Well, Augustine, living a long time ago, he says this is an angel representing Christ. And he says this angel was a willing loser to Jacob. But I'm not convinced this is merely an angel. Yes, Hosea tells us this is an angel. I'm not denying scripture. I'm not trying to put scripture against scripture. But there's a number of faithful men, and I was studying this yesterday, who interpret Hosea, even his view of this is an angel, as the angel of God. And if you see the angel of God in scripture, who is that? God himself. Matthew Poole, he said that the idea is there that he became an angel by office, voluntary. It's a voluntary undertaking. Angel means messenger, one who is sent, who goes. And so almost an office here. Matthew Henry says the angel was called God and therefore is supposed to be the son of God. And John Calvin, this angel was truly and essentially God. And so just think about what we have here. Not only do we have the testimony, uh, the, the historical testimony there that this is God, but think about it. Who else in scripture has the authority to assign a new name? God assigned Abraham a new name. Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, he assigned him a new name. He told him, you will no longer be called Abram, but you will be Abraham. And then why would this angel tell Jacob that he has striven with God? Why wouldn't he just say you've, striven with an angel or you've contended with an angel. So I'm with men like Calvin, Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, who see this as God wrestling with Jacob. I see this as a theophany, possibly a Christophany. For those of you unfamiliar with the term, a theophany is an appearance. It's a manifestation of God. While a Christophany is a manifestation of Christ, who is God? But nonetheless, whether this is a Christophany or a theophany here, nonetheless, this is God who is wrestling with Jacob. 
I mean, in Genesis, we've seen the angel of God speaking to man as though God were speaking. And then with Abraham in chapter 18, he entertains three men. Two of the men were angels. The other man was the Lord God. That was a theophany, a manifestation of God. And here we have a similar picture. A man wrestling with Jacob, who is God himself. In our catechism, we ask their kids this question. Who is God? What's the answer? You can hear it. God is a spirit, and he does not have what? A body like men. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like men. This is a basic truth about God. God is not like us. He does not have a body like us. So this is God appearing as a man, not him becoming a man. This is not to be confused with the incarnation. This is not to be confused with God himself assuming human flesh. This is a manifestation of God as God appears as a man. But just like the incarnation of Christ, there's a lot of mystery here that I cannot explain. And when we look into the mysterious workings of God, this should cause us to marvel, to wonder, to marvel and wonder at things that are beyond our comprehension. Because we're talking about the infinite God who transcends his creation. He's high above it, transcends it all, yet he's intimately involved in it. A good question for you to ask yourself Do you stand in awe of God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures? So as you see God in the scriptures, do you stand in awe and say, who is this God? Do you marvel at God? Do you wonder at the, do you you stand in wonder at his mysterious works? Well, a negative answer to that question will tell you a lot about the state of your heart. Will tell you a lot about your relationship to God. God is not like us. He's high above us, yet he intimately, intimately interacts with his creation. He could have left us to ourselves, yet he comes down and we see that most intimately in the incarnation. God who is high above, who owes us nothing, comes and in Christ gives us everything. What is your response to that? Do you marvel at that or do you say, eh, I've heard that a couple times. I've heard that a hundred times. Eh, no big deal. The greatest happening in all of history Jesus Christ becoming man is not something you can leave here and say, eh. You either respond by, who are you, O God? Be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm unclean. I'm a man of unclean people, a man of unclean lips. Be merciful to me. Confess Jesus is Lord, or you reject him, even if you're indifferent. Even if you say, eh, no big deal. That is a rejection of him, and you show yourself to be his enemy. I pray you will not leave here that way today. So returning to our question, who is this man? This is a manifestation of God who appears to look like a man. But you might be wondering, how could God not prevail against Jacob? Well, don't forget with a single touch, just a single touch to his thigh, he put Jacob's socket or his hip out of joint. So don't forget about the power that he displays, but also don't forget about the tenderness of our Lord. God could have come and struck Jacob down. He could have exemplified his might and his power. But what we see here ought to remind us of Isaiah's prophecy about Christ. Isaiah said, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. One of my favorite Puritan paperbacks is The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs. In this book, he expounds upon the tenderness of Christ and he notes that the Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust, that our strength is not the strength of steel. 
the Lord our God is tender and delicate with us. And for this, we should be grateful. For we're talking about the infinite God. Mighty in power, one whose glory we cannot comprehend, a glory that is too great for us to stand before him and see him as he is and live. And for this reason, God is veiled in this theophany. His glory is not fully revealed. The same way his glory was not fully revealed in the incarnation of Christ. The Son of God was full of glory, yet that glory was veiled. And this is for man's sake. For perishable ones. We're perishable. We cannot stand before the imperishable one and see his glory and live. Therefore, that glory must be veiled. And his power even is restrained here in a sense because he could easily overtake Jacob. His glory, if it was not veiled, Jacob would not even be able to stand for a second. So who is this man in Genesis 32? This is a manifestation of God, but this is not the full reveal for God's glory must be veiled so man can see God and live. And that's what amazes Jacob in verse 30 is he says, I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. I've seen God, yet my life has been spared. Second question. Why are they wrestling? Think about this question in light of Jacob's life. His life has been characterized by wrestling. He wrestled with his brother in the womb. He wrestled with his brother out of the womb. He wanted to be first. He wanted to be the firstborn. So he wrestled away from Esau, the blessing and the birthright. And then with Laban, we have 20 years of wrestling. This time Jacob is on the receiving end, but nonetheless, it was a 20-year wrestling match with Laban and Laban tricked him, he deceived him. But Jacob contended with him and eventually got what he wanted. And now we see Jacob on the eve of meeting Esau. He's wrestling with God. But why are they wrestling? We'll make sense of this. Look back to verse 24. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. I mean, notice here, Jacob doesn't initiate. The man comes and wrestles with him. Jacob didn't initiate this wrestling match. God did. James Montgomery Boyce, pastor of, I think, 10th Presbyterian. He pre- well, he was, preached this. It is not Jacob who seeks God to wrestle with him. Rather, it is God who comes to wrestle with Jacob to bring him to a point of both physical and spiritual submission. His pastor before him, Donald Barnhouse, says Jacob was a fleshly man and had to be overcome in his flesh before his spirit could be reached. I like what they're saying there. Because God is the one initiating this. God is doing a work in Jacob through this wrestling match. Essentially breaking Jacob's pride. I mean, up to this point, yes, we've seen Jacob in his gradual transformation. I mean, he is a different man. We see that. Yet we also see Jacob still leaning on his own understanding, still relying upon his own strength and his wisdom. But here we see God breaking him physically and spiritually. In verse 25, he puts his hip out of joint. Remember, why is that significant? He's about to face Esau tomorrow. Think about that. What's he think Esau's coming to do? He has a a band of 400 men of, of, of an army. He thinks Esau's coming to kill him. Now all of a sudden he's injured. What can he not do? He can't run away. He can't flee. He can't pick up the babies and run and try to keep them safe. He's, he's stuck. I mean, he's like he's in the mud. Jacob comes, there's nothing he can do. Hips broken, not, no, not broken, but, but put out of socket. He sure can't run away. So not only does God break Jacob physically, he's also breaking him inwardly. To understand this, we have to look at the blessing in verses 26 through 28. In verse 26, Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
He's demanding this blessing. We see him desperately holding on to the Lord. He knows who this is and he will not let go. His physical strength is already gone in the sense of his hip has been put out of socket, but he's clinging to the Lord. Whereas Jacob formerly was clinging to his own strength, his own wisdom. Now he's clinging to the Lord saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then in verse 27, the man asked Jacob for his name. He says, what is your name? He doesn't need this information. Remember, this is the Lord. He knows Jacob's name. God doesn't need this information. It's not like he's trying to fill out a form and say, hey, who are you now? No, he knows who this is. He knows this is Jacob. But he asked his name for a reason. He asked Jacob to tell tell him his name because this is a confession of who Jacob is. The name Jacob, do you remember what it means? It means one who grabs the heel, one who cheats. And now he acknowledges who he is in the flesh when he says, my name is Jacob. He is Jacob. Esau acknowledged, if you you remember, whenever he was so angry after the blessing was stolen, he says, isn't he rightly called Jacob? For he cheated me? For he has Jacobed me? If you look at the words, the wordplay is, is he not rightly called Jacob for he Jacobed me? Or is he not rightly called a cheat for he cheated me? So Jacob is confessing his true nature before the Lord. He's a man who's been broken, a man who is being sanctified, a man who's being prepared to head a great multitude of people. So he says, my name is Jacob, one who cheats, one who grabs the heel. And now in verse 28, God gives him a new name. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Israel means something like he struggles with God. So Jacob receives this name, and as he says, your name will be Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. That's why he receives the name. He struggled with God and with men. And so while Jacob's life has been one of struggle, he is one who overcomes. And the reason he overcomes, the reason he prevails is because of God. Jacob overcomes, he conquers because of the one who conquered him. And God conquers Jacob here with his tender mercy. He breaks Jacob's pride. He brings Jacob to a place to depend upon him, to rely upon him and upon his strength. That's why God wrestles with Jacob. He's bringing Jacob to a place of utter reliance upon him. And we see that with his new name. The name Israel will be a reminder that God is on his side, that God is his God. And while Jacob receives a new name, he will then ask this man, please tell me your name. And then we read, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. He doesn't answer Jacob's question, and quite frankly, I can't tell you why. I can quote someone. I'll quote John Calvin. I know I've quoted him several times today, but he was helpful here. He says, though Jacob's wish was pious, the Lord does not grant it, because the time of full revelation was not yet completed. For the fathers were required to walk in the twilight of morning. And the Lord manifested himself to them by degrees until at length Christ, the son of righteousness, arose in whom perfect brightness shines forth. So Calvin understands this to be a partial revealing of Christ who is progressively revealed to us throughout the scriptures. I don't know. I'll leave that for you to wrestle with, pun intended. Um, But I'll leave that for you. So, Now that we've looked at who is wrestling with Jacob, why are they wrestling? We'll now turn our attention to the aftermath, the morning after. And what we see in verse 30 is Jacob naming this place Peniel. He names this place as a reminder of what he's seen. He names it Peniel when he says, for I've seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob, who's now Israel, has seen the face of God, greatly veiled, yes, but even though it was veiled, 
Jacob has seen the glory of the Lord and his life will never be the same. He realizes he's seen God and he's lived for God has delivered him from his own glory. And then in verse 31, the sun finally comes up and we see Jacob, he rose and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Penuel is just an alternate spelling for Peniel, same place. But we see him limping. And this limp would serve as a reminder that this was no dream. His limp would be a reminder that God appeared to him the night before. It'd be a reminder of his weakness, yet also of his strength. Left to his own devices, Jacob is weak and powerless, but with God, he's more than a conqueror. And not only will Jacob's limp serve as a reminder for Jacob, it will also serve as a reminder for his household. They'll see him limping in and most likely want to know why. And once Jacob tells them about this encounter, they'll hopefully remember when they see Jacob limping, that God is with them, that God is their God. And the same reminder is in verse 32. In in verse 32, we see there was a tradition that was formed Um, at the time when Moses penned this book, when he penned the book of Genesis, when God gave him this revelation, the people of Israel did not eat the sinew of the thigh. That's the tendon of the thigh that's on the hip socket. Well, why did they not eat it? Because God touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So this dietary restriction would serve as a reminder of Jacob's encounter with God. So as ancient Israel refrains from eating the sinew of the thigh thigh on the hip socket, hopefully they'll remember God's power along with God's presence. Hopefully they'll be reminded through this tradition that God is with them. That he's with them to bring forth his promises through them. And so that brings us to the end of this chapter. The end of a chapter in which we see Jacob wrestling with God on the night before he finally meets his brother Esau. And while Jacob's life has been one of struggle, his greatest struggle just took place as he struggled with God. And now that he struggled with God and lived, what can possibly stand in his way? God delivered Jacob from himself. God delivered Jacob from God. So what can possibly stand in his way? This reminds me of one of my favorite verses of scripture. If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's the confidence Jacob will now have as he stands before his brother Esau. As Jacob limps along, he'll be reminded that God is with him. As his people see him limping along, they will hopefully be reminded that God is with them. As they refrain from eating the the sinew of the thigh on the hip socket, hopefully they'll be reminded that God is with them. But unfortunately, this is part of why we read some of Psalm 78, unfortunately, one thing is certain in the life of ancient Israel. They were quick to forget. And when they forgot about God and they forgot about his mighty works, what did they do? They chased after the idols and the gods of this world. And sadly, they would spend many years struggling against God, not struggling with God. So if you take anything away from this sermon, I hope you see how important it is to remember. Jacob was given a limp and it would serve as a reminder that he was absolutely dependent upon God. And that would especially come into play when he stands before his brother. There'd be no hope of escape. For he was already wounded before his encounter with Esau. Therefore, his physical limitation would remind him that his only hope is God. And then there's Israel, to reiterate again, who established this dietary restriction. They did this as a means to remember. To remember that God is with them. Yet, if we were to go through the Bible, we would see that they quickly forget. They quickly forget God. And we don't know how long they observed this dietary restriction, but we do know that the significance of this reminder eventually fell on deaf ears. They worshiped idols because they did not remember 
So for us today, let this passage serve as an encouragement to remember God as he is. God is the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth, yet he cares for his people with such delicate precision. His mercies are tender. They are new every morning. He could have struck Jacob down, yet he did not overpower him so as to crush him. He was tender with Jacob and he spared him. And the same goes for us who've been united to Christ through faith. He is tender with us and he spares us. So remember who God is and remember who you are. If you're in Christ, remember that you are a sinner saved by grace. But here's the the deal. God no longer calls you a sinner. You know what he now calls you in Christ? A saint. Belonging to the church of God, the church of Christ. We are saints of God, a people set apart for God's good pleasure. And how does this happen? It's not because of something in you or in me. This happens because of the work of Christ. A man named Novation who lived during the third century, he understood the struggle between God and Jacob in Genesis 32 is typifying another struggle. He says this struggle prefigured that future contention between Christ and the sons of Jacob, which is said to have had its completion in the gospel. For Jacob's people struggled against this man and proved to be more powerful in the conflict because they obtained the triumph of their own unrighteousness over Christ. So he understood this as the prefigurement of Jesus willingly succumbing to the Jews. Whether whether you see that or not, we know that that's where the scriptures go. We know that in scripture, we see Jesus willingly succumbing to the Jews. He was condemned to death. He was handed over to Pilate who subjected him to the cross. I mean, remember, what does Jesus say whenever his disciples want to rise up and fight? If I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels, 10,000s of angels. I mean, he had the power right there to resist, yet he willingly goes to the cross. He willingly subjected himself. So while he appeared to be the inferior one, he would prove otherwise. He would raise up from the grave, ascend to the right hand of God, showing himself to be supreme. And so now in him, through faith, our sins are forgiven. And his righteousness becomes ours. And we are called saints, not because of anything we've done. So if you become proud in your Christian life, it's because you've forgotten that you're utterly dependent upon God and that you've been forgiven apart from anything you've done. You've been forgiven by God out of his free grace. If you've become proud, you've forgotten that apart from Christ, there's absolutely nothing good that dwells in you. Therefore, remember God as he is. Remember what he has done, and remember who you are in light of him. Apart from him, you're nothing more than an empty-handed beggar. But in him, you're still that empty-handed beggar. But he has an inheritance in store for you. An inheritance that's greater than anything this world could ever afford. And as a guarantee of this inheritance, he's given you the Holy Spirit. And the inheritance that I'm speaking about is God himself. There's nothing greater than God. Remember that. There's nothing to be more desired than God. Therefore, I exhort you to remember him, to cling to him. Don't forget his sweetness and his grace. It's so important for us to remember. We do this by preaching the gospel to ourselves, by meditating upon God's truth, by singing God's praises, by communing with God through the word and through prayer and through godly fellowship, and through gathering here for worship. One of the greatest reminders that God has given us is one another. Godly fellowship. Not just to come be in the presence of one another, but to be in the presence of the saints. Just think about when we sing together, 
The testimony that that is, the reminder that as I look at all of you and know some of the things that you're going through and have gone through and to see you sing out hallelujah, glory be to our great God. And you say that not because your life is easy or pleasant. You say that because there is none greater than God. Remember him. Remember his justice, his grace. Remember his power and his presence with his covenant people. Remember Christ, who is your life. And for those of you who do not know God, who are not known by God, I implore you to listen to him who says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And as you come to him by faith, don't forget how great was the price that was paid to achieve your salvation. The son of God, God himself poured out his blood for undeserving sinners such as you and I. Such a high price that we could never repay and he doesn't ask us to repay that price. Remember him. Do not presume upon his kindness and his patience. Be like Jacob and marvel at the one who has revealed himself to you and has delivered your life from the pangs of sin and death. Look to him and remember him who says, I will remember your sins no more. In him we have life. Remember that and enjoy this blessed life of godliness. Look to him. Cling to him. If you learn anything from this, be reminded of how important it is to remember and remember him. Remember Christ crucified on that cross who didn't stay there, who didn't stay in the grave, but now raised up to the right hand of God who now intercedes on your behalf. Look to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, We do, we come before you because we are a people who look to Christ. We are a people who our hearts have been turned to delight in Christ. Many of us have spent many years rejecting Christ. But now you've shown us the beauty, the worth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, help us remember. Help us remember the price that was paid. And help us remember that you don't even ask us for one second to pay back. Because that price is too high. There's nothing we can give you that's not already yours. Help us to be a people who are grateful. Help us to be a people who see that our only response, the only proper response is to give our lives, not to earn anything, but because we've been given everything. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name.